Our sermon passage this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're closing in on the finish line here. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of God. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. After that He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to, to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that He was seen by James, then by all the apostles, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we have all men to be most pitiable. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm a little off today, but thank you for entertaining me. This morning, let us, uh, let us pray before we get into 1 Corinthians 15. Our Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. May we take this passage and apply it to our lives so that the hope of Christ and the hope of our resurrection in him will be palpable to those around us. That it would grant us joy and love for all the things that you have given us and for ultimately the giver of those gifts. I pray that you would enliven us by your spirit, help us to understand this word. Give us grace this morning through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, when God created the world, this is always a good place to start with creation. When God created the world, He ordered it. We learned that last week. Last week, we discussed the second half of 1 Corinthians 14, and we got a glimpse into Paul's exhortation for the Corinthian worship to be organized and orderly. And the reason for Christian disorder, or I should say Corinthian disorder here, was fundamentally sin. Sin causes disorder. Death is the undoing of order, and sin leads to that undoing. So when sin came into the world, and death through sin, natural and good order started to break down. And this is seen in one's own life. If you think about your own sin and the consequences of that sin. 
If you are in sin and unrepentant, your life starts to deconstruct. Relationships start to fade. You start to isolate. This is also seen in churches on a larger scale and even in nations. We've deconstructed as a nation over the last couple of decades. Deconstructed so much that the human body itself is not what we want it to be. Men can be women, women can be men. So the question has to be raised, how is that order, how is that order restored? And this, of course, is where the gospel comes in. Now we hear this word a lot in American churches, right? Gospel, gospel, gospel. Everything is gospel. What is the solution to everything? Gospel, right? And this is certainly true. The gospel is the solution to not only the restoration of all things, but its glorification. The gospel is the solution. The gospel not only restores us to where we used to be, but also makes us better in Christ. And this is why Paul seems to make a drastic shift in his argument from chapters 10 through 14. And he, he begins to give a solution to the chaos of Corinthian worship and to Corinthian practice. And the solution is not just rules to follow. He gave those rules in 14. Right? You should do this and do this and do this. But it's not just rules to follow, but to declare to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is ultimately the solution to their issues. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' Jesus's life and his work on our behalf. After the completion of Christ's salvific, salvific work, he declares from his throne in the scriptures, in Revelation, Behold, I make all things new. Our Lord Jesus' work had a purpose. His purpose was to make all things new. That is the purpose of the gospel. To not just, in new in the scriptures, as you know, new covenant, new wine. New means better. It doesn't mean totally distinct from. It means better. And that's what our Lord Jesus has come to do. Not just to restore us to an Edenic paradise, but to make us better than that. To glorify us. To improve upon us and upon his creation and make it more glorious, to make it new. Now, if this were not the case, if this was not the purpose of the gospel, then we are, as Paul says, to be pitied more than anyone else. What is the purpose of Christ's work if it does not make old, dead, and sinful people whole and new? If it doesn't make us like him? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's, uh, let's start with chapter 15 here. Paul begins chapter 15 with the definition of the gospel. That's where we need to start. What is the definition of the gospel? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? Well, Paul gives it, gives it to us. He gives it to us plainly and without reservation. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Peter, the twelve, five hundred more, James, the apostles, and finally Paul himself. Now, that seems like a bigger definition of the gospel than we give most people today. Usually, when we hear the gospel in popular Christian culture, we don't hear about how many people Jesus appeared to. Right? We hear... Jesus died for your sins, believe on him, and be forgiven. 
right? That's usually the gospel that we hear. Paul talks about Peter and James and Jesus being buried and 500 witnesses. What does all that mean? Why is this important? Why must the gospel include burial and resurrection and witnesses along with Christ's death for our sins? Well, one of the reasons is every man will cease to sin one day. Every man will die. Every man will die and sin will cease. Every man will be judged after death. Jesus died so that we might die in him and be judged before our physical death. And the judgment that God rendered in Christ's death was, it is finished. We are reconciled to God through the death of his son, but that reconciliation is only the beginning. Just as every man must return to the dust from which he was made, so Jesus returned to the dust, so that by the power of his Holy Spirit, he might create man anew from the dust of a new earth, marked by his water and his blood that flowed from his son. Christ's resurrection is the recreation of humanity in a new Adam, a new man. We have no hope for life without the resurrection. If Christ is not risen, we stay in the dust. The good news is not good if Christ is not risen. If he is not risen, nothing will be raised. He is the regeneration of all things, Matthew chapter 19. He is the recreation of all things. All things are raised only because Christ is risen. Jesus is the good news. All of him. But this resurrection is not some hypothetical or purely spiritual reality either. And one of the issues in the Corinthian church here is that they deny the bodily resurrection of men to to some degree, right? We don't know exactly what, what they were denying, but they, we knew that they denied the resurrection of the dead as a category, except for Christ's resurrection, which seems to be odd. It's, again, it's difficult to pinpoint what they believed exactly, precisely, about the resurrection. But it was probably along the lines of the Sadducees. If you remember the Sadducees, our Lord warned against the Sadducees to his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Sadducees, and he did this for a reason. They were a liberal uh, academic class of their day. You could think of them as the liberal academics that we find in our own institutions. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection was a spiritual concept within their framework. But it was an idea. It was an idea. It wasn't a reality. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul or the resurrection of the body. They refused to believe anything that wasn't written in in Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the implications of this were grave. There is no judgment in their understanding. If If there is no resurrection, there is no final judgment. The judgment is in the death. So think about what that would, how that would shape one's life, how that, how that would shape one's worldview, right? If there is no judgment beyond the grave. And the Corinthians were living like this was true. Like there was no judgment ahead, like their bodies were only temporary and could be used up for any desire that they wanted. 
So Paul mentions all of the witnesses of the resurrection of Christ to show that this was an historical event. This happened in history. This was real. And that these same witnesses who witnessed Christ's resurrected body also witnessed the resurrection of those that happened at Christ's crucifixion. This is not some spiritual allegory that communicates some spiritual truth. Resurrection is real. The resurrection of Christ is an historical reality. He appeared to the chief of the apostles, to Peter. He appeared to the other twelve. He appeared to the five hundred, some of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this particular letter. They could talk with them, probably. They could see them. He appeared to James and all the apostles, and he appeared uniquely to Paul himself. This wasn't a theological proposition. This wasn't an interesting idea that you could float around in your academic institutions of this resurrection of something, right? This was a a physical reality. It was a historical event that real people witnessed. And this is important because without without this reality, without this historical grounding, there is no hope for man. Jesus, when he rose, he took flesh with him. He took humanity with him when he rose from the grave. This is important. And without that, we cannot be raised either. He took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And this means that he not only took human flesh to the grave, but he brought that flesh from the grave in his resurrection in real time and real space. If the resurrection is not a historical reality, we are still dead in our sins. This is because God created us both body and soul. To make the soul more important than the body is to misunderstand God's created order, how he made the world. He made us body and soul. And Jesus redeemed mankind wholly through his cross and resurrection. And the witnesses provide us with the assurance that this happened historically. And that it's not just an idea. It's not just some interesting thing that we can think about. If we deny the bodily resurrection of mankind, we deny that Christ is risen. And if we deny that Christ is risen, then our preaching is empty and our faith is in vain. What hope do we have? What hope do we have if our Lord Jesus is dead? What hope is there if Jesus is still buried? All of this points to a deeper truth. Jesus' resurrection is the substance of our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the substance of our resurrection. Jesus rose from the grave for us so that our salvation might be made complete in Him. Salvation is in Christ. Paul says elsewhere, As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Romans 5, 18-19 The death of Christ destroyed sin and wiped our debt clean, but that is not enough. We would still be left in our sins if not for Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection secured for us our Lord's righteousness. 
which is life. The righteousness of life, as Paul says. His life is our righteousness before God. And this is where our hope lies. The righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without receiving the righteous life of Christ, we would still be in our sins. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are not saved. We are not brought from death to life without the life of Christ, without the righteousness of Christ given to us. Salvation is only possible by participating in the life of Jesus. And salvation is recreated, is being recreated in the image of Christ. All of the Christian life is this participation in that life. We've been buried with Him in baptism and are made alive as new men and women by faith. We have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by His Spirit. Our faith is futile if it leads to a dead Savior. But our Lord Jesus is not dead. He has conquered the grave. And this resurrection life is applied to us through faith in Him. And since our Lord is risen, since He appeared to the apostles, to the 500, even to Paul himself, since He is risen as an historical fact, our hope of everlasting life is secure. He has promised our resurrection and Jesus' resurrection is the surety of that promise. And even more than that, His resurrection, again, is the substance or the foundation of our resurrection life. We would not be raised if Christ is not risen. We would not have righteousness if Christ is not alive. And since we have been clothed with Christ, we have the promise of His perfect life given to us. His death was a down payment and His resurrection pays the full. If the only hope we have in Christ is in this life only, we are of all men the most pitiable. Our faith has an aim. Our faith has a purpose. The everlasting kingdom of Christ. Our life that is to come. And that life is Christ. One day we will all die. One day we will all be buried. And our bodies will wait for their resurrection and glorification in Jesus. And this expectation is not just some hope. Maybe one day we'll be raised. This expectation is made sure in the fact that Jesus died in the first century in Jerusalem. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was anointed with spices and laid to rest for three days. And the third day, he rose from the dead. He appeared to Mary in the garden. He appeared to Peter, John, and the rest of the apostles. 500 witnesses saw the risen Lord. His resurrected body was right in front of them. And this truth has serious implications for how we are to live our lives. We witnessed three baptisms this morning. Wonderful grace of God shown to us in the means of His grace. We witnessed three baptisms. Baptism is the beginning of our recreation in Christ. Baptism is the uniting of our bodies into the side of Christ, into His body. 
It is a sign and seal of the forgiveness of sins, and it marks our body for the fulfillment of our hope in Jesus. It marks our bodies for resurrection, because that is our hope. Our hope is everlasting life in Jesus Christ. We are not our own, but we have been bought with the price of our Lord's precious blood. And baptism shows us this. The old man in us has died. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. We die with him that we might be raised in him through faith unto everlasting life. And without the bodily resurrection of Christ, we drown in the waters of baptism like Pharaoh and his host. Instead, we are brought safely through death by faith in the righteous life of Christ. The church is the institution that participates in the resurrection life of Jesus. All of us here who are baptized in His name and come in His name to worship Him this morning, all of us participate in the resurrection life of Christ, even now. And that means that the church must be an example of this hope of resurrection. Our lives must be ordered by this faith. Faith in the sure promises of God in Christ. Faith in the risen Savior who not only takes away sins, but also makes all things new. Our families will not change apart from this hope. Our church will not endure apart from this hope. Our state and our nation will fall apart apart from this hope. All other gods lead to death, but only one God leads us from death to life. Now it is true that if Jesus did not rise from the grave, if he is not risen, the world should look at us with pity and disdain. If Christ is not risen, why start a family? If Christ is not risen, why work hard? If Christ is not risen, why educate your children? Why have children? Why endure anything at all? that causes you any remote inconvenience if there is no risen Lord. The good news is that Jesus not only died for you and all of your sins, all of your lying, all of your lusting, all of your anger and bitterness, all of your anxieties and depressions and laziness, He not only died for all of that, myself included. He not only died so that you might be forgiven, but He rose so that you might receive His goodness that you might receive his life to walk in. He has prepared for us good works as his workmanship in Christ. He hasn't left you in your sins. He hasn't just wiped your slate clean for you to solely again. He has given you the life of Christ, and he has promised you everlasting life. And without the resurrection of the dead, everything we are doing is pointless. And, it only be, and it's only because of his resurrection that our faith has any purpose or any end at all. Our faith has an object, and it is Christ, our risen Savior. And on this All Saints Sunday, the doctrine of the resurrection becomes even more meaningful. Right? Saints have gone before us, have given up their lives in service to Christ, and have called us, by their example, to walk like them in the ways of Christ here even now. 
They have laid their lives down as seeds for the growth of the kingdom of God. And this is only possible if the resurrection of Christ is true. The seed of Abraham was planted on the cross. And in the resurrection sprouted a sapling that which, from which the fruits of the kingdom would grow. And in like manner, the saints gave up their lives as seeds for his resurrected kingdom. And we are to follow in their train. All of their work would be in vain if Christ were not risen. But we can look at their lives as additional assurance that this faith, the faith of Christ, is not futile. Their lives and work for Jesus were not in vain. Their lives are witnesses of the power of the resurrection. Will our children, will our grandchildren, will will our grandchildren's children say the same thing about our lives? Will they say the same thing about our lives? Will our lives be marked by this same hope that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to you and to your children and neighbors and to them also? This life should be pointing to the life to come. All of our actions and our words should be pointing others to the risen Lord. And when this happens, individuals, churches, communities, even states and nations are reordered and made new by the righteous life of the risen Christ. So follow in their train. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.